What if everything you ever knew about history was a gigantic lie? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, today I want to talk to you about a conspiracy theory, but not just any conspiracy theory. This may be the nerdiest of conspiracy theories, and one of the longest-running ones, uh, though it has taken many, uh, many different forms. Our story begins in the mid-17th century, with a French Jesuit named Jean Ardouin. Ardouin was, like many Jesuits of his day, something of a geek. His father had been a bookseller, and this seems to have set off young Jean's interest in all things ancient. Like most other educated men of his day, Ardouin received, uh, particularly as a Jesuit, a thorough grounding in Latin and Greek language and literature, and it was here that he excelled. Ardouin was so good at these ancient languages that he was asked to edit several major works of classical Roman literature, uh, particularly the natural histories of Pliny, and this is where the trouble starts. In addition to his interest in Roman literature, Ardouin also developed a taste for numismatics, the study of coins and metals. Ardouin was far from alone in this interest. The end of the 17th and the early 18th centuries saw a, uh, an explosion of academic interest in the study of non-textual evidence for the past. Many educated men and women who studied ancient Greece and Rome were increasingly realizing the value of what we today would call archaeological or material evidence in attempting to piece together the history and chronology of the ancient world. Over the course of the intervening centuries, works of ancient literature and history had been copied countless times, and not always with perfect fidelity. So what emerges then is an interest by this group, we would call them antiquarians, in attempting to get at the quote-unquote real past, and to figure out where and when textual interpolations or changes had crept into these ancient texts, and based on a close reading of the Latin, try to determine what the original source text was. This served uh, Ardouin very well when he eventually became involved in a large-scale effort to produce a critical edition of all the proceedings of every council of the Christian church. As an antiquarian, then, Ardouin excelled. His knowledge of ancient Latin was almost unparalleled, but he became increasingly frustrated by what he saw as inconsistencies and incongruities between what were supposedly ancient Roman texts and the extant numismatic evidence. Looking at these authors, he saw too many errors, too many variant readings, uh, too many usages of words that simply could not have existed at the time that these works were supposed to have been composed. The language just did not match the numismatic evidence. Some events which should have been commemorated in coins and medals were not. Authors used bad Latin, or words that had come into existence and usage centuries after they should have been composed. And so he began to form a theory. What if these ancient sources were in fact not ancient at all? In the midst of his many and prodigious works on coins and epigraphy, Ardouin began to publish works which called into question the authorship of some major ancient works that had been accepted as immutable parts of the Roman canon. Authors like Tacitus, Suetonius, and Virgil, Ardouin showed, must not, could not have been the authors of the works ascribed to them. In some cases, Ardouin's criticism went past mere philology and ventured into arguing aesthetics. Uh, historian Anthony Grafton points out in his study of Ardouin that at one point in the Aeneid, the title character Aeneas says, I noted my tracks and followed them back through the night. 
How, asks Hardouin, could he see or observe tracks, especially in the dark? The real Virgil, says Grafton, would never have used so many inappropriate words simply in order to make his verses scan. If he had confined his critical study to pagan Roman authors, that would have been one thing. But as I noted before, Alduin was part of a large-scale effort to produce a scholarly edition of the Acts and Decrees of the Council of the Church, and it is here that he ran into serious trouble. Upon turning his critical eye to the works of not only the councils, but the early theologians or fathers of the Christian church, here too Alduin found incongruities and inconsistencies, many of which troubled him as, when viewed in a certain light, it seemed that some of these authors were in fact espousing the direct opposite of Christianity, and instead were teaching some kind of perverted, almost atheistic philosophy. Alduin's increasing alarm at what he thought was an insidious rot at the heart of Christian and classical learning finally resulted in the publication of his Prolegomena. A Prolegomena is a critical or instructive introduction to a topic, and in his Prolegomena, Alduin makes some shocking proposals. He begins the Prolegomena, like any good conspiracy theorist, by insisting that what he's about to propose is going to sound crazy, but if you just stick with it and see him through to the end, you'll understand why it makes sense. Alduin proposes that sometime in the 13th or 14th century, a group of renegade Benedictine monks essentially manufactured wholesale almost all of both the ancient Roman literary corpus and many works of foundational Christian theology, including the works of Jerome, Augustine of Hippo, um, the Greek fathers Gregory of Nazianus, Clement, Origen, Ambrose, Gregory the Great, and Tertullian, along with many of the so-called proceedings of the Christian councils. They then took these works, made them refer to one another to create a sort of false history of cross-references, and then seeded them throughout Europe. So, just to recap, Everything you think you know about Christian theology in the ancient world is wrong, and was the creation of Benedictine monks in the Middle Ages, a group that Alduin calls the Impious Faction. Alduin seems to have realized how utterly insane all this sounds, and he spends a lot of time in the Prolegomena defending himself. He says, quote, Some may say, could men take such pains in framing so many false books? As if when the fact is established, you may doubt the way in which it was done. It is a fact that there were men who wrote these books, and it is manifest by recent examples of heretics that bad men write many more and thicker volumes to defend error than Catholics to defend truth. Compare the monstrous loads rather than volumes under the names of Luther, Calvin, Brentius, the Magdeburg theologians, the Fratres Poloni, and others. You will understand that the impious faction spared no labor to establish their impiety." End quote. Uh, the entire thing is like this. It's kind of fantastic to read. Well, needless to say, Alduin's theory goes over like a load of bricks with the Catholic Church, and his theories, despite being grounded in fairly rigorous, if somewhat misguided, textual and numismatic criticism, uh, Alduin would labor for the rest of his life to demonstrate the rightness of his critiques, but to little avail. However, the idea that he started did not die with him. Occasionally in the succeeding centuries, other scholars, including the venerable Isaac Newton, have taken up similar criticisms of ancient and medieval source material, particularly the issue of chronology, the order and dating of ancient events. Every time these seemingly fringe authors get shot down by the academic establishment, and rightly so, but the theories continue to crop up. Perhaps the most famous iteration of Alduin's criticisms is the phantom time hypothesis of German historian Herbert Illig. 
Beginning in the early 1990s, Illig proposed that uh, rather than texts and works of theology, entire years of human history had been invented. The theory goes that someone, either the Holy Roman Emperor Otto III or the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII, uh, engaged in a wholesale rewriting of European history, injecting 300 years of fake human history between the years 600 and 900 AD in order that their regnal dates, either Otto or Constantine, would include the apocalyptically important year 1000. In doing so, these men were required to invent major historical events and figures, uh, most notably Charlemagne. Illig is not actually the first author to propose this. In the 19th century, for instance, uh, a British historian, Edwin Johnson, who translated Aldoin's Prolegomena uh, and subscribed to many of its propositions, he also suggested that a large chunk of the Middle Ages had been invented wholesale by Benedictine monks. As evidence, Illig and his colleagues point out that there are supposed issues in standard dating techniques like carbon dating and dendrochronology, which is the use of tree rings to date uh, to known meteorological phenomena, as well as some very bizarre math involving the Gregorian attempt to correct the old Julian Roman calendar, but uh, this is all sort of the evidence that they use to propose their theories. All of this evidence, and I'm saying that in air quotes, uh, is spurious at best, but the idea has continued to persist. Which brings me to Anatoly Fomenko. Fomenko is a Russian mathematician who, in the 1980s and 90s, proposed a similar theory to that of Illig's phantom time hypothesis uh, in a huge multi-volume work entitled History, Fiction, or Science. Uh, Fomenko suggests that, in fact, human history is much, much younger than we think it is. Whereas the phantom time hypothesis suggests that we're really living in something like the year 1715 rather than the year 2015, uh, Fomenko suggests that the entirety of human history has actually only played out over the course of about the last 1,000 years. To explain away much of the history, Fomenko suggests that a lot of our history has in fact been doubled. That is to say that events have been copied wholesale and just regnal or death dates and names have been changed. The evidence for this, he says, is that regnal lengths during certain periods and locations across human history seem to match, and it's very sort of, there are charts. Moreover, things get reused a lot, according to Fomenko. Uh, the Hagia Sophia is actually Solomon's temple, and Solomon himself is obviously a repurposing of the Turkish Sultan Suleiman. Even Jesus becomes an amalgam of several men, including a Byzantine emperor. The whole thing is very wild, very pseudo-historical, and very, very nutty. So why on a show called Footnoting History have we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about a set of theories which are obviously badly done and slightly crackpot history? While Aldouin and his successors were wrong in so many of their conclusions about the fabrication of the historical record, they do point out the often difficult nature of actually doing the discipline of history. As historians, we rely on a combination of textual and physical or archaeological evidence to come to our conclusions about the ancient world, and the further back in time we go, the less evidence tends to survive, and the more we have to speculate. And Aldouin was right to look at variant texts and philological errors with suspicion. Forgeries do sometimes happen. The most famous example of this is the supposed Donation of Constantine, a document that uh, was supposed to record the 4th century granting of the western half of the Roman Empire to the Pope, Sylvester I, by the Emperor Constantine in exchange and thanks for Sylvester healing Constantine of leprosy. The document was reportedly found in the papal archives and tended to get trotted out during uh, periods, particularly in um, the High Middle Ages, when the papacy was in a jurisdictional or authority conflict with the Holy Roman Emperors. 
But many people suspected that the document was a fake from the very beginning, and it was the Renaissance humanist, uh, Lorenzo Valla, who definitively showed that it was a fake in the 15th century, using many of the same linguistic critical tools used by Aldouin two centuries later. So while we may not actually be living in the year 1715, and no, Jesus wasn't probably a Byzantine emperor, it's important to remember that in the study of history, we must always be careful of how we use our sources. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.